Hi, Ernie Manus. Catherine Liu, is that you? <laughs> it's time to unwrap some candies. Which is my favorite art. time of the week, each week, when we get to sit down and talk about what we love and then share it with the audience. That is always fun for me. And how's your week been? It's been an exciting week here at Houston Public Media. It is. As we record this, we are in the midst of celebrating the 70th anniversary of KUHF, our radio entity, that began 70 years ago this year. So we look pretty good for 70, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but considering we are looking back nostalgically at our station, our guests today both are looking back at something nostalgic. Right. Kind of a retro-y yeah. episode, if you will. I'm going to be talking about a composer, a composer from the 60s and 70s when he was recognized. And you are taking us back to the, to 40s. the 40s. And not necessarily the composer, but a tribute to the work of a composer who was popular well before the 40s and well after the 40s. But really, the 40s is the period that Paul Hope and his cabaret are focusing on at this point in time. They did an earlier one. And they're looking at Harold Arlen, who wrote maybe a song you may remember, like Somewhere Over the Rainbow. But that was from his work in the 30s. So we're going to focus on his work in the 40s and not the work in the 50s, which then brings you The Man That Got Away and all of that stuff from Judy Garland and films. So interesting visit on some of these. And Paul Hope will be here to share with us his stories of Harold Arlen and to talk about his cabaret that's going on for three consecutive weekends right here in Houston at Ovation's Nightclub. Oh, sounds fun. Yeah, I think it will be. And I'm going to be introducing our listeners to a minimalist composer who came up through the 60s and 70s and, and 80s as well, lived during the time of Here's a name you, you probably know, Philip Glass. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you might not have heard of Julius Eastman. And his music has been largely lost and forgotten until now. Did you discover it? Did you find it and <laughs> discover it? Oh, oh, I wish. It's been There's been a resurgence and rediscovery of his music in recent years. But it's never been performed in Houston before. But a group named Loop 38 is doing the first ever performance of music by Julius Eastman, a black gay composer who lived during, uh, you know, a time of political, racial unrest. So, yeah. So interesting discussion coming up with two members of Loop 38 about this composer that's, that's sort of making a comeback, if you will. So we're back to Catherine Liu, arts detective. Yes. Dun, 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 dun. You want to have some candy, though? Let's. And get on with the show? <laughs> I'm going to have an atomic fireball. How about you, Catherine? Got my butterscotch ready. Catherine and Ernie are about to begin the show. Find your seats, silence all chiming devices, locate the nearest exit, and should you wish to partake of any hard candy during the program, please unwrap your candies now. Joining me in the studio is a friend of mine for many years, and uh, we're trying to figure out if we've ever actually been on air together. It is the one, the only, Paul Hope. Quite a legend in this town. Hello, Paul. Hi. People are familiar with you, work through Tuts, work through the alley. You have been seen on stage all over town, and you have your own cabaret series, too. Yes. Tell me about that first. Okay. Well, they started when I had a nonprofit called BioCity Concert Musicals, and I started a cabaret series 
uh, with that. When we weren't doing our annual musical, we would do two cabarets a year. And what these were was a tour through the Great American Songbook, starting from its inception. So we started before the turn of the century. (laughs) <laughs> and with a potpourri and have gone through Victor Herbert, Sigmund Romberg, Jerome Kern, Cole Porter, you know, et cetera. And we finally are in the 40s now. And um, Biocity Concert Musicals folded about four years ago. Uh, but I thought, well, the cabarets are not very expensive to do. And uh, so I went back where we got started with all of this, which was at Ovation's nightclub in the village. And all of my audiences have started flocking back. And um, <laughs> So who are you focusing on this time? This time we're focusing on Harold Arlen, who is one of my favorites. Which is a name. You hear it and you're like, oh, yeah, I know that name. And then you think, oh, somewhere over the rainbow. Got it. And then you start looking at what else he wrote. And it's amazing. I, did not, I don't know that I ever realized that he wrote all that he did. Yeah, it's like what didn't he write. Yeah. It's more like, it's more like it. Um, uh, now, these are songs that we're not doing because we've already done one Harold Arlen cabaret uh-huh. a few years back up to 1940. What we're focusing on is the decade of the 40s in his and career. And he kept busy. It wasn't yes. like he stopped. So it was like we went up to The Wizard of Oz. Okay, so what did he write one. up to The Wizard up of Oz? Up to The Wizard of Oz. Let's just see. Um, Stormy Weather, Get Happy, The Birth of the Blues. Um, no, I've got a right to sing the blues. <laughs> you know, and... Um, so with this, I mean, he kept Lena Horne and everyone at the Cotton Club very happy. <laughs> Let's just you know put it that way. And um, um, some of the songs we're going to be doing are that old Black Magic. So now which we move into the forties. Into so the forties. And that old Black Magic, Blues in the Night, uh, Happiness is just a thing called Joe, One for My Baby and One More for the Road, um, Accentuate the Positive and Come Rain or Come Shine, and that's just. Before intermission. Wow. What a career that yeah, man has. Yes. So what is it do you think that keeps his songs enduring? Well, they're unusual. And they all they're unusual. He did not write in the standard what we call the thirty-two bar format, which all of his contemporaries like Irving Berlin and Cole Porter, etc., would write in. With him, if he got a melodic idea, he would just go with it. And so his songs have a very unconventional structure, um, which unless you really sat down and looked at them, you I mean, you're just going to experience them as a great song. Right. Um, his melodies and his harmonies are unlike anybody else's. Um, he was very influenced by African-American music. He was the son of a cantor, but he grew up downstairs from an African-American family. And so he was always upstairs playing with the kids. And uh-huh. so, like I said, early in his career, he wrote, he was the, the house composer for the Cotton Club in Harlem. Now, if I know the story correctly, he had moved to Hollywood, and that's yes. why then the shift into all of the Hollywood movies right. from all the club and Broadway stuff he used R- to do. Right, and he hadn't done a whole lot on Broadway. He'd done a little bit of vaudeville, and um, but everybody in the 30s in the Depression was moving out to Hollywood. And uh, this decade is when he worked with his two best lyricists, that which were Johnny Mercer, Mm-hmm. and Yip Harburg, E.Y. Harburg, who wrote the lyrics to Wizard of Oz, but also you guys would, you guys out there, you would, guys out there, <laughs> would know him as the lyricist for Finian's Rainbow uh, as well. Uh-huh. And um, so these were his two collaborators during this decade. 
people might say, well, why isn't Harold Arlen better known? Or why didn't he not, did he not have a more auspicious Broadway career? Mm-hmm. Is he was terrible at choosing subject matter. For his, for his musicals, which is actually why he was very happy in Hollywood, because he could just uh, concentrate on writing songs. They say we need a ballad and an up tempo and a, you know, uh-huh. whatever Harold, and he wouldn't have to concern himself with what was going on in the story. He'd just write these great songs and let the studio plug them in wherever they they needed to go, and he wasn't really concerned about writing for story. He would leave that up to other people. So unfortunately, he, where Broadway was concerned, he exercised some pretty bad judgment. <laughs> okay, so you talk about that in the 40s. But mm-hmm. then if we go back to the late 30s, and that's where Wizard of Oz is, and you think that is probably the top movie musical of all time. Right. How come it worked there? How come did he... Was the uh, he creative got asked, process just he, different for him? He got asked to do it, and he was partnered with Yip Harburg, and it was just a, a matter of the chemistry involved. Uh, I think it was that um, Arthur Freed had heard some of his songs and were very impressed, and Arthur Freed was at MGM was really wanting uh, them uh, for, to write the songs yeah. for, the, for the piece. To move way ahead to yeah, today, yeah. who will be presenting these songs to us when they see them oh, with your group? A very talented group of people um, that have been doing these uh, cabarets for me. Um, my mainstay is somebody who's been in Houston theater for decades and is still going strong, uh, Grace Givens. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tamara Seiler is on board, and um, Brad Gertz, Amanda Passanante, um, uh, Seth Cunningham, who is somebody that I just met a couple of years ago, who's been a real find. Um, at Brian Chambers, let's see, I've, I'm leaving out one of the women, Amanda and and Tamara and Gracie. Oh, hello, and and Whitney Zangarini, <laughs> who's also somebody that I've worked with more recently. And are you just directing, or do you wander up for a song or two? I am see the event, and that's what's different about these. It's not just an evening of songs. I will tell you about the songwriter and about the movies or shows that they're from, and any kind of backstage dish that I can dig up. So it's called Paul Hope's Cabaret. Uh huh. It happens at Ovations. Yes. It's not day after day. What's the schedule of them? It's three consecutive Monday nights. So it's great because there's nothing else going on. And theater and t- folks can and, come see and it. And show folk can come <laughs> see it. And show folk can come be in it when they're doing other things. So, that's, so what are the that's, dates on this one? Uh, it's the You would ask me that. That's my job. It's the last <laughs> two Mondays of this month. So it's this coming Monday and the two following Mondays. Oh, cool. So last two Mondays of February, first Monday of March. Okay, so you've got this one up and going, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are you looking at next? The next one, which will be three Mondays in May, is the early career of Julie Stein. Oh. It, so it's his Hollywood career uh-huh. um, up through and including high, high Button Shoes and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes on Broadway. Okay, so tell me this. Why is the cabaret scene in Houston been a very quiet creature for a long time? Why don't we have a stronger cabaret presence? Venues, I think. Really? Yes. I uh, ran into Marilyn May uh, (laughs) in Philadelphia about six, seven years ago. I was narrating a ballet, and we ran into each other. She was doing her her act around the corner from where I was staying. And she said, I want to come to Houston to to perform, but I don't know where. 
yeah. the, those rooms aren't in existence anymore. Yeah. So ovations is sort of it yeah. in terms, uh, you know, in terms. That's why you've got, say, Sharon Montgomery will come to ovations regularly. And, you know, it's like that and hotel lobbies. You know, cocktail lunches <laughs> in hotel lobbies is sort of where it is. Do you think if there was the, the definitive cabaret room, we would have an audience for it? Is there still a, oh, a big appetite so. for that? I think so. Uh, when we were doing this under the auspices of Bias City Concert Musicals, we were very fortunate in that we were doing these at the Performing Arts Center at the Ensemble mm-hmm. Theater. And that's where our audience really built because we had the room to spread out. Yeah. And um, um, uh, a, a good friend of mine, Patty Hubbard, w- became one of our fans. And one of her comments after one of our shows is she said, you'd have to go to the Carlisle to get this. Oh, wow. You know, nowhere in Houston do we have this. And a whole lot cheaper than going to the Carlisle. Yeah, exactly. There's no big cover charge. <laughs> I've been there, and I know what that feels like. Last thing before I let you sure. go and get onto it. So you talked about you narrate it, and you share the stories, and you take us through mm-hmm. the career. Anything you learned about him that really caught you off guard that you didn't know until you started doing your research? Oh, well, it's not it's not all that happy um, is that his wife was someone who suffered from a major depression and mental mm-hmm. illness. And Harold himself was a was a heavy drinker and alcoholic, which is, I think, why he had such an affinity for writing torch songs and very soulful yeah. numbers. That's why he and Johnny Mercer got along very well, because it was like, who could outdrink the other one? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you won't be out drinking anyone, but no. you will be maybe presenting no. some wonderful songs. This will go on at Ovations. You can find out more. What website can people go the to? The Ovations website. We have Perfect. a page there. So, So it's, what's the web address? Uh, you're asking. You're asking me. It's just Ovations Nightclub. Just Google Ovations, just Google it and Ovations Nightclub, and it will come up. And you'll want to know all about Ovations.com. You'll want to know all about Paul Hope's Cabaret. Paul, thank you so much for thank coming. Thank you. It's truly a pleasure. Thank you. You've got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch. On to the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In Between. You got to spread joy. To find out all about Paul Hope Cabarets, you can go to ovationsnightclub.com. And uh, it's going on for a number of weeks, but there's also a lot of other great cabaret that Ovations hosts. So take a look at their website and find out about all of it. And now, Catherine. Arts detective Catherine Liu. Oh, that's perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So, right, we are we are on the case. <laughs> on the case. Finding out who is Julius Eastman, an American composer, an African-American composer of the 60s and 70s and 80s, who was really prominent during his time, but his music has been largely lost and forgotten. And the story goes that he was evicted in his later years and his landlord actually threw out his music onto the street. Um, so it's, it's, uh, much of it has been lost, literally lost. Um, but people have been piecing together uh, some of his repertoire in recent years and sort of rediscovering his music and bringing it back into the light. Houston's Loop 38 is one of those groups, a new music ensemble founded at Rice University in 2016, and they are doing the first ever Houston performance 
of music by Julius Eastman. And we're going to hear all about that from percussionist Craig Houseshield and harpist Caitlin Mertens. Craig Houseshield and Caitlin Mertens, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. You're both from Loop 38, which is one of the, the newer music groups in Houston, founded in 2016. Um, what should people know about Loop 38 who haven't been to one of your concerts before, let's say? Well, we uh, specialize in contemporary music. We're a small ensemble collective of musicians, um, and we are just really excited about programming new music and highlighting some local artists and performing music that Houston doesn't always get to hear. And you're not an orchestra, Correct. You are, I mean, as you use the word, a collective. And I, I really like the phrasing on your website, which is, quote, a modular collective of passionate musicians bringing new music to the heart of Houston. That says it well. It's a plus to your marketing team <laughs> there. Um, yeah, I like that. I mean, modular collective sounds, sounds fancy and modern. <laughs> but like you're 16 people, 16 musicians, and you kind of reconfigure, I guess, depending on the instrumentation and the, the what the piece calls for. Because contemporary music can get very, very wacky. <laughs> okay. Exactly. So, yeah, in this concert, we have a lot of uh, larger ensemble pieces. But on different programs throughout our season, we have some duos, some quartets. So we have enough um, personnel to cover, you know, a variety of different situations that come up. Like in our last concert... Um Caitlin and our oboist Katie joined the two percussionists in a vibraphone quartet. Oh, yes. <laughs> and a quartet for wine glasses. So you never know what to expect. It's really fun. And everybody's just kind of, everybody's really passionate about playing this music and, and sharing it with others. Now I have to ask about the name because it's very Houston. I mean, I like how there's a layer of, right, musical loop kind of reference there, but uh, definitely a freeway reference. <laughs> Definitely the freeway reference. And uh, it's really thanks to Brandon Bell, who was one of the founding members. He was a founding percussionist. And I think over one of these planning sessions, he, he was like, the loop is 38 miles long. Let's let's name the ensemble after the 610 loop. Good so. old 610. Everybody's <laughs> favorite road. <laughs> Speaking of new music or music that is new to the listener, uh, you are presenting music that Houston audiences have never heard before for your next concert, which is on February 21st, and that is music by Julius Eastman. Who is Julius Eastman? That is a great question. Many people knew him and his music when he was alive, um, but he kind of had a tragic short life, and uh, his music wasn't saved like many other composers. He hadn't submitted a lot of stuff to publishers at the time of his death. And um, although I do not know know if the story is verifiable, but the common story is that most of his music was lost when he was evicted from an apartment in New York and that his landlord came and threw it out with all of his other belongings and that it was lost to the wind or time. Uh, hard to say. And there's actually been a resurgence. There's a woman named uh, Mary Jane Leach who uh, remembered a piece of his for 10 cellos. And 
she wanted to do a presentation on it and started doing research and found that his music and his life and everything, it was kind of a black hole of information. So she started searching for, for his music, calling other people who had played his music. Um, she found recordings and scores for some of the pieces, and she's been piecing together his catalog for the last um, more than a decade, I think, uh, which has culminated recently with the resurgence of a collection of his, his works in recording uh, and new scores. So it's very exciting. I don't want to put you on the spot, or I don't mean to put you on the spot, but what can you tell us about his life? Because he was born, he was born in 1940, uh, and was he was prominent during his time, during like the 60s, and then of course, like you pointed out, kind of had this sad ending, if you will, because he ended up being homeless and and died alone at the age of 49. So what, can you fill in the gaps there a little bit for us? Yeah, and I certainly don't consider myself to be an expert in his life. The things that I've read, uh, he seems to have mixed and mingled with, with all of the in people in New York uh, in the 60s and 70s. There are some great pictures in a recent book about Julius Eastman with him and Morton Feldman. And there are stories about him performing for John Cage Earl Brown, all of like the New York school, which was hot at the time. He was kind of a gregarious people. People have described him as being outrageous or inflammatory. Um, so he was uh, he was a homosexual African-American man uh, during a period of time, like civil unrest of the 60s and 70s. And rather than like shirking away from that, he flaunted it. So um, I, I read a quote in an article by the New York Times that said, uh, what I'm trying to achieve is to be what I am to the fullest, uh, black to the fullest, a musician to the fullest, and homosexual to the fullest. And from what I can tell, I mean, he lived his life to the fullest. He liked to like really throw himself out there. Um, the recollections of the premiere of Feminine is that he wore a dress and asked everybody to, to eat soup. It was very unconventional. Yeah, that's what I really enjoy that aspect of, you know, this performance is that like getting to know Julius Eastman, there's so many anecdotes and and things that you read that he was just had such character and he was so bold in who he was and, and yet never apologized for for being who he was in a time when when it was really hard to be who he was. I think it's really cool to, to get to experience that and, and really, you know, show that part of him. So the piece that Loop 38 is going to be performing is called Feminine, dating back to 1974. So I actually want to play an excerpt from Feminine, just kind of get a little flavor of this piece, um, and then we'll talk about what's going on in it. Great. Okay. Thank you. 
And that is an excerpt from Feminine by Julius Eastman, composed in 1974. And the recording is from a performance by the SEM Ensemble with the composer himself on the piano. So what what should we know about this piece, Feminine, and, and sort of what's going on in what we're listening to? He's kind of infamous for some pieces later in his life that were um, very in-your-face, kind of intense. But this came from earlier, and to me it's very meditative, beautiful. Um, You heard the sleigh bells going on. Those kind of happened throughout the whole piece. A lot of the minimalistic practices at the time involved kind of constant motor rhythms or other kinds of pulsating things that, that were common with Philip Glass, Steve Reich, and the like. So it made sense to have like a percussive instrument making this this jingling sound, jingling, jangling throughout the whole thing. Yeah, I think so. And leading off of that, what you can hear, there's that constant jingle jangle going on. And then in that excerpt, the vibraphone plays this um, cell a couple of times. And I think it's cool to to see what the piece is kind of built off of that sort of that cell being repeated and permutated and uh, it, it goes throughout the ensemble and everybody kind of gets to change it slowly and over time it really starts to develop so it really has that meditative feel where there's this yeah constant pulse going on but then a slow permutation as things starts to change. What do you think is the significance of the title feminine? Um, perhaps as opposed to masculine I don't know. Yeah I mean I wish we had that other piece the masculine piece because then we could compare it in his own own mind. It was performed once in an art museum opposite a piece called Masculine. And Masculine's been totally lost. We don't, there's no information about what that, that piece is about. But um, for me, the piece, it doesn't ever get like super muscular. Um, like some of like John Adams' later music, it's very romantic and, and it's not mechanical like the Steve Reich and... Uh, Philip Glass music. It has this just frenetic, beautiful energy about it. Is that feminine? I mean, we all define masculine and feminine differently, but um, it's definitely its own character. I want to circle back to something in case there's more to be said about it, more interesting facts, right? Um, So why was Julius Eastman forgotten? Is it simply that he was evicted and his music was thrown out? How did how did that all sort of happen? I mean, that's a good question. Um, one of the things that I've read comes from Lucas Foss saying that that Julius Eastman was a was an amazing was a genius, um, and that really the thing that kept him was was just the way he went about carrying himself. Like he was he flaunted everything, kind of back to that quote about living life being everything to the fullest, and sometimes people can't handle that. And I think it's one of the things that makes Julius Eastman great because he didn't temper himself. He he went maximalist. Um, he became, I think, most famous in his day for his performance of the the Eight Songs for a Mad King, which is a very gregarious piece. The soloist is acting and screaming and shouting and has a lot of extended techniques. And at the end of the piece, I think, shatters a violin. Um, and our cellist mentioned that when she was chatting with her her parents – and she mentioned his name. They were like, oh, he's the guy who did Eight Songs for Mad King. You know, so he had some reputation. But my assumption based on the, the Lucas Foss mention is that he just was maybe too much for some people to handle. And that led to maybe 
towards the end of his life, you know, experiencing some hard times and and not being able to put himself out there and and maybe losing some recognition. Then by the time his works were thrown out, um, nobody was there to collect them. Um, and so we're only going back now to to find these lost recordings and these lost scores and try to put them back together. And we're looking, I mean, people are looking for them because the works are great. And the piece is stunning in its scope. I mean, between the sleigh bells and the vibraphone lick playing over and over and over again, you start to, you may, I mean, some people may lose their mind, right? Like, <laughs> um, but it becomes part of the silence of the room. Is that idea, the John Cageian idea that, like, the silence is whatever noise is going on around you at the time, or... Um, it's the sounds that are there naturally. We refer to the silence of New York City as the traffic. And the sound of the sleigh bells and that repetitive vibraphone passage, I mean, it may take 10 or 15 minutes to like let it seep into your system, but as it grows, it almost becomes like it's the background thing. And then everything that you're listening to in the woodwinds, eventually the brass come in with this kind of like the big, low, thunderous sounds. And I think it becomes very transportative. And I think many people could have a sense of, you know, just becoming something greater than what's there. Loop 38 presents Julius Eastman, a Houston first, a concert on Friday, February 21st at 8 p.m. at First Congregational Church of Houston. And Craig Hauschild and Caitlin Mertens, thank you so much for coming in to talk about it. Thank you for having us. This is great. We're very excited. We're really excited. It's been really fun to talk to you. Percussionist Craig Hauschild and harpist Caitlin Mertens are members of Loop 38, a new music group here in Houston. You can find out more about them and their upcoming concert, which features Feminine by composer Julius Eastman at loop38.org. And if you're intrigued by the life and music of Julius Eastman, I really encourage you to find, you know, to search out clips on YouTube or there's some great articles out there on the internet because we really were able to only scratch the surface of, of, of this fascinating man whose music was groundbreaking, also infamous at times, and political, so you may want to just find out more about him. It's always fascinating to me, though, when you think something has been lost, or in his case, you think all the music was just thrown away and discarded, how you can start to re-piece it together. I think it's almost an archaeological dig, and even into current culture, these things happen where things might be lost. So it's it's great when we can find and rediscover and uh, uncover missing Thank you, arts detective Catherine Liu, for for going on this journey. You know what that means? We're done this week. We've come to the end. Aww. If you would like to tell us what you thought about the show, feel free to uh, correspond with us in the realm of social media, hashtag UICN, or send us an email at UICN at HoustonPublicMedia.org. And of course, UICN stands for Unwrap Your Candies, candies now. now. Easy to remember. I'm Ernie Manus. And I'm Catherine Liu. Have a great week. Bye-bye.